Hi, everybody. Gary Wilkerson here with the Gary Wilkerson Podcast, uh, being brought to you by World Challenge. And we are really thrilled and honored and looking forward to our interview today with uh, Dr. Matthew Barrett. Uh, he's an author. He is a professor. He is uh, working out of uh, uh, Midwestern Baptist Seminary as an associate professor there and um, doing, doing a great job and also editor of uh, Credo Magazine and the Credo Podcast. I've had the privilege of uh, listening to some of those podcasts and really get stirred and inspired and instructed by those. So I appreciate you doing all that different types of ministries that you're doing. Uh, Matthew, welcome to our podcast. Glad you're here with us today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a joy to be able to wish we could do it in person, but uh, this is second best, so it's, it still works. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I do miss some of the personal stuff. We, we've, my wife and I, uh, we're in our early 60s, so we tried to avoid uh, you know, too much contact because at our age, we're starting to get on the borderline of that. And we ended up going to a board meeting um, last month. And uh, okay. one of the board members called me the next day and said he had COVID and I ended oh. up picking it up and then giving it to my wife. So uh, I'm just now kind of coming out of that. I may have to put the mute button on. I'm still coughing a little bit, but uh, okay. well, I, I think everyone would understand given, uh, you know, how, how much it's been going around. Yeah. Yeah. It really has been, it's a very, very tough season for a lot of people. Uh, but, uh, you know, the first book I, uh, uh, I read of yours was called none greater and I yes. hi highly recommend that it is yeah. a phenomenal book. I think if you are, uh, more scholarly and looking for some in-depth teaching, this would, would encourage you. But if you're, um, uh, more, I don't know if you're novice is the right word, or a lay person that uh, wants to know more about the attributes of God, uh, highly recommend that. And then this one is not out yet. Uh, is that correct? Simple Trinity? You're... It is. It, it will be out in just a few weeks, believe okay. it or not. It's right. right so, this is great timing because we're, we're right on the, the edge of it releasing. Oh, good. Well, we can even pre-order it, I'm sure, on Amazon right. or other, other resources. Uh, but uh, your subtitle here is The Unmanipulated... Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your first one is the undomesticated uh, attributes of God. So if you write another book, you're going to have to find another un. Something's going to have to be un. Uh, I'm, running, like I'm running out. <laughs> I got un, unsophisticated or something like that. You That's know, right. <laughs> unsophisticated writings of us uh, humans. Uh, but no, this is, this is really good. But the simple trinity, uh, before we get into the actual book, there, uh, just want to know personally, what motivated you to become a theologian, a professor, uh, really studying some of the deep things of God. Where where did that all come from? Uh, were you raised in a Christian home, or does it come later to you? You know, I did have the privilege of being raised by two parents who loved Jesus, and uh, I I sensed that from them very early on, and it was contagious. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were just they were just faithful to. Uh, share the gospel with me, uh, sometimes just in the, the quietness of our own home. Uh, they were faithful to encourage me to ask questions and to uh, read through the scriptures and ask the pastor questions. And uh, the Lord worked through those very ordinary means to uh, to cultivate grace in my life. And so I'm very grateful to both of my parents. Mm. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, why become a theologian? There, well, there, I, I suppose I could say many things about that, but I will say this, and this won't surprise you since you've read None Greater and uh, now Simply Trinity. Uh, in both books, I allude to this sort of influence. Uh, early on, uh, when I was young, actually, it was it was when I met who is my wife now, Elizabeth. Um, she <coughs> she gave to me a copy, it, just a little uh, copy of uh, Augustine's Confessions, and I had never read Augustine's his Confessions, let alone Augustine at all. And when I read those confessions, if, if to our you know viewers, if you've read the confessions, you know that towards the beginning he has there's this one page, right at the start, really, it's in the form of a prayer, and it is a reflection 
on God that is um, just unparalleled. Uh, it, Augustine takes you into the deep things of God uh, in order to discuss who this God is in and of himself. And it dawned on me as I was reading it that I, this, I knew God, but, but this opened my, my eyes to a God that I had just not known. And I think it was at that moment and thereafter in, in all kinds of little ways like that through, as I continued to read individuals like Gustin, that I, I too thought, you know what, if this is what it means to be a theologian, count me in. Hmm. And uh, Lord willing, hopefully I can, uh, I, I can try, I'm no Augustine by any means, but I can try to uh, give other Christians just a, a bit of a glimpse of, of this God that Augustine was, was speaking of. So mm -hmm. anyway, I could go on, but early on, uh, I praise God for the way he used my wife yeah in that way and um it's it's stuck with me ever since i guess that sounds powerful does your does your on a personal note does your wife ever regret giving you that book uh, now that you've become a theologian because of it or is she pretty I, i'm <laughs> i'm afraid to ask her that <laughs> uh our house is has more bookshelves than she would probably want <laughs> Yeah, I, I spend um, <laughs> an, an ungodly amount of time uh, with my head buried in books. So. <laughs> uh, just out of curiosity, what are you reading right now that's, that's uh, motivating and stirring you? Anything particular? You know, since writing Simply Trinity, I have just been immersed in some of the greatest books on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I, I just had a, a great opportunity uh, recently to teach a class uh, on the Trinity mm. and we did it in more of a it was a seminar style class so it was more of a Socratic dialogue style which I really enjoy yeah. um, and you know I mentioned Augustine earlier we read Augustine's large work on the on the Trinity um, but we also read uh, if, if I can sort of get a an advertisement in here, commercial. We also read a, a book on the Trinity by another uh, great father of our faith, Hilary, Hilary of Poitiers, mm. um, just called on, on the Trinity. And it is one of the clearest and most profound treatments of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I say that as someone who, you know, uh, loves Augustine, of course, Augustine brings a lot of muscle uh, hmm. But when you read Hillary's treatment of the Trinity, you just want to stop and pray and, hmm. and even worship. So I'll leave it at that. But um, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have Augustine. I have, matter of fact, I have it uh, I'm about halfway through right now. I've never read the whole thing. Oh, yes. Uh, but it's uh, uh, for me, you know, being that I'm, I'm more of a pastor and uh, yeah. head of this missionary organization called World Challenge. But um, I love I love more of the the doctrinal theological uh, re stuff to read uh, with Augustine and others and Selm and others. You know, it takes me about like I read about ten pages and I have no idea what I'm reading, and then on like the eleventh page, all of a sudden it just leaps off the page. And like you say, it makes you want to worship and yeah. fall on your face before God and say, "You are more glorious and holy than I could have ever yeah. imagined." Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the ten pages that you just read that made no sense. <laughs> oh okay you know and sadly i've never heard that I've, I've been a christian since i was six years old yeah i've never heard this stuff in the church i never heard it preached like that's right i can't hear i can't remember a series on the trinity you know i remember series on how to have a better marriage or how to raise your kids or how to get you know finances in order um you know that's fine stuff but man i i, I covet now after you know digging into this a little bit later in life uh, yeah. i cover the stuff you're writing and i, I want to thank the lord for you and men Thank like you, you who are, you know, kind of bringing to bear on the church today a little bit things that are uh, kind of maybe some missing stuff. And, and mm. I know in your book, Simply Trinity, you kind of do that. I, I was mesmerized by the book because I don't know if anybody said this to you yet. It, it struck me slightly as a, like a mystery novel. Uh, really? 
Yeah, because you were you started off saying like there's something wrong. Yeah, and I was like you know don't go in the basement. You know, like don't you know like what what is it? What's wrong? There's something yeah. missing. There's uh, and, then, and then you go into kind of uh, you know here's the way things used to be and yeah and that's kind of the way it is now. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Like what uh, I, I think you 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 even uh, used the word drifting away. We've drifted yes. away from some things. Yeah. Uh, can I take a few minutes on that one? Yeah. Well, before I do, inside I I I feel so flattered because you can't see it, but over here I have shelves and shelves of fiction. <laughs> oh okay and cool i'm uh i'm I, you know if, if in another life i suppose i i would <laughs> love to be a, a a mystery novelist and uh you know to, to quote to quote the beatles a paperback writer <laughs> yeah. wow well, yeah you certainly have you know kind of comes through in uh in, in this, this latest book that you wrote it uh perhaps it, i missed my calling i don't know no, no i but uh, yeah, this is good. But yeah, to answer your question, uh, you're on to something there. You're on to the mystery that um, I point out. I start off the book this way and just say, there's something wrong. There's something wrong and we don't know it. Um, I, I, use the, I use a couple illustrations. Uh, one is drift, as you mentioned, and I call it Trinity drift. And it's almost as if you know, those who live by the ocean or maybe a lake will understand this. You know, you go out in, into the boat, uh, maybe with your, your loved one or, or a friend, and you're, you're just going to have a, a great time, uh, maybe a meal, maybe some fishing. Um, hour, two hours goes by, and if you're not paying attention, and if you're not anchored down, uh, you, you, you drift. And sometimes you might look up hours later and realize, oh my goodness, we have actually drifted quite a bit. Now, if you're out in the ocean, that could be dangerous mm -hmm. and you might not even know where you are. Um, I think something similar has been happening in the last um, century, the 20th, 20th century in particular. Of course, it's bled over into our century. Um, and as much as uh, you know, evangelicals might want to think they are immune to this type of trinity drift, actually, I think we've been affected by it in ways we don't even realize. Now, what what exactly is this trinity drift? Um, that that's where the rest of the book starts to spell it out, chapter by chapter. But essentially, what I argue is that first of all, there have been key doctrines of the Christian faith that have defined the the biblical orthodox understanding of the Trinity that we have discarded, or at the very least, we are we have grown suspicious about. Mm -hmm. And I can explain, you know, what some of those are um, later if you want. Yes, please. Um, doctrines like uh, eternal generation that was just standard to say uh, a biblical understanding of the Gospel of John that the Son from all eternity is begotten from the Father's essence. Uh, in the fourth century, the, when the deity of Christ was attacked, uh, the church fathers gathered at, a, at the Council of Nicaea, and, and this is from which we get the Nicene Creed. And it was really uh, this doctrine that they not only considered essential to distinguishing the Son as a son, after all, that's what it, the word even means uh, from the Father. But they also considered this doctrine essential to safeguarding and protecting the Son's equality with the Father. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I, you know, we, I, I shared a minute ago some of my early encounters with uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, as I started to read just the standard textbooks I was given by evangelical authors, I started to notice it was just missing. And if it wasn't missing, it was, it was criticized or looked at with great suspicion. Uh, a second thing that kind of defines this Trinity drift is even deeper in the soil. Um, it's not just that we maybe have been a bit negligent 
or, or skeptical of just basic key doctrines of Christian Trinitarianism. But to make matters worse, in the 20th century, there was the rise of what's called social Trinitarianism, which redefined the Trinity as a type of society. Uh, and in this type of society, the focus and the emphasis was not so much on the unity or what we might call the simplicity, the oneness of, of the persons, um, but rather the focus was far more in the direction of the, the persons as individual agents, perhaps even at times as their own separate centers of consciousness or will, which of mm -hmm. course quickly brought on the charge of tritheism. But uh, where we see the drift is this, uh, this redefining the Trinity as a type, some type of society then became the prototype and the paradigm for many, many different agendas in human society. And so you have all kinds of modern theologians saying, well, if the Trinity is this type of society, uh, divine society, then that's the perfect paradigm then for politics or ecology or ecclesiology or gender discussions, and the, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, it does not end. Mm. And uh, that type of, I call it, you know, here I'm, I'm, it's not so much an observation, but a criticism, I call it a type of manipulation of the Trinity for uh, our, our many agendas in society mm. in its worst forms. It is diverse, but in its worst forms, it can start to look like we're creating a Trinity in our own image. Wow. And, you know, all that to say, if you keep following that line of thought, you start to notice, hey, this isn't just something out there in, you know, modern theology. This is something that actually we have started to practice within evangelical circles as well. Mm -hmm. The... Um... <clears throat> You know where where do you look at these things and where you're studying them as from, from more of an academic point of view, uh, from from your theological mindset <clears throat> downstream that kind of affects people like myself pastorally. It affects the churches because you know we're 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 not communicating. If we try to communicate the Trinity at all to anybody, we're really not doing a very good job of it because we have been sort of co-opted into this mindset. Yeah. And in reading your book, uh, Simply Trinity, I recognize some things in my theological understanding that I was like, oh, I, I need corrected on that. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I was like, I think I had come to without without even really knowing it. Like, I, I probably, I certainly wouldn't say I was a tritheist, like believe, believing three different gods. Yeah. But maybe pragmatically or functionally, I kind of saw like, well, you know, Jesus is over here and he does this for me and the Holy Spirit's over here and he kind right. of comforts me. And then the father, he's way up here and I reference <laughs> him and, but you know, yeah. he's loving as well. Yeah. Uh, seeing three different personalities because we call them persons, mm -hmm. seeing right. three different consciousnesses, three different wills. Uh, and so you're saying that that's kind of more of a 20th century concept. Mm -hmm. It's not ancient history. Yeah. It's not church fathers. It's not biblical either. Uh, but right. it, it has sort of deformed us as a, a, a functional church today, hasn't it? That's right. It has. And um, one of the, you know, sometimes we do this unintentionally, you know, so I, I can imagine there's probably pastors out there, you know, like you said, in your own experience, and we, we just assume, oh, the, the Trinity's persons, well, they must be persons like, like us. And yeah. so, you know, you've got your own will, I've got my own will, you're doing your thing, I'm doing my thing. And we don't realize it, but actually, um, we, we don't stop to think, well, wait a minute, am I, am I making certain assumptions about human society and how it works, and then projecting those back on the triune God? Uh, that can be, that can actually be really dangerous, even if we don't realize it. Um, I, I would argue, I mean, there's so many things we could focus on. I would argue that one way we see this 
just to give one example, is um, when we ask the question, well, what, why is God, how is God, this triune God, one? Uh, oftentimes, we, I will hear individuals say something like, oh, well, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they, they cooperate with one another. They get along. <laughs> and uh, they work together. And uh, from there, uh, someone might even start to use all kinds of, you know, analogies uh, that usually, you know, most Trinitarian analogies uh, don't work very well. They usually end up, uh, end up in some type of, of heresy. Uh, <laughs> but when we go back to the scriptures and when we, uh, when we take some wisdom from uh, those on whom shoulders we're standing, um, uh, you know, in my book, I talk about, you know, the dream team and, and uh, how we're really standing on the shoulders of so many others who've come before us who have thought hard about the Trinity. Well, when we do that, we realize, oh, actually, the unity of the Trinity is defined in a very different way than our human society. Um, uh, we, we could say it this way, uh, the, to, to use some fancier, you know, theological language, we could say that um, what defines the unity is God's, what we call God's simplicity. That doesn't mean that you know, God's basic and easy to understand. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, when we refer to simplicity, we mean that God, uh, there's not just one God, but this one God is one. He is without parts. Uh, he's not divisible in any way. Well, that actually changes then our perspective of the Trinity, because then we, we, we realize, well, then we, we shouldn't be speaking of the persons in a way that, that talks about them as if they are these divisible parts. Mm -hmm. um, it, rather, to use you know, uh, some theological language, we might say something like, well, they have one essence. And this one simple, undivided, indivisible essence, uh, it subsists, it exists in these three persons. Or to, to, to take it up a notch, we might say this one essence has three modes of subsistence. And there we talk about what those are. The Father, he's unbegotten from eternity. The, the Son is begotten from the Father from all eternity, and the Holy Spirit proceeds or is spirated from the Father and the Son from all eternity. The beauty of, of describing the Trinity that way, though it's so foreign to us today, the beauty of, of describing the Trinity that way is we actually preserve the simplicity or the unity of the Godhead. We don't compromise uh, that unity and then sort of parcel off divinity into each person or multiply, you know, divinity in some way, uh, yeah. rather we, we preserve it. And from there, we can then uh, very carefully describe, okay, well, if, if this is who, who this triune God is, how then do, what, do these af affect the way we talk about his, the triune God's mission of salvation towards us? Yeah. Wow. Man, you're, you're making me think a thousand questions all at one time here. Um, and I'm trying to track with things you just said so I can go back and ask some specific questions about each of them. Uh, going back, to, you know, talking about the uh, the Trinity seeing like, you know, they're, they're, they're really close. They're really good friends. They just, they're so intimate. Um, and, you know, where John speaks about the father and I are one. I think many of us have wrongly discern that meaning more that they are really in communion they, they they are so intimate with one another and, and we would love to have that and then when jesus prays that high priestly prayer make us one is you know it's kind of like we're saying okay we, we want to be close to jesus like he's close to the father but that's not quite it doesn't really break down that way you know the jews actually and the they, they they didn't take jesus's thoughts there saying the father and i one is being like oh isn't that nice they're so close Right. They understood. He was saying, I, I am God. I am, I'm not one like as a good friend would be one or a yeah. husband and wife would be one. I am of the same essence. And that's why they wanted to kill him because they, they even said, you are, you're claiming to be God. And so, right. so you're talking there about the oneness that I think is to a large degree is missing. 
to, to where now more, I think more and more people in, in my circles anyway, you know, uh, see more of a divisible God with three different personalities, three different wills, three different consciousnesses, uh, and they really work together closely, but uh, you know, that, that's, that's, not the, that's not the case. So that, that was one, I just wanted to comment on that. And then secondly, as you're talking about modes, um, and forgive me if I don't have the right language here theologically, yeah. is, is there something in, in, in history that was considered uh, heresy that like, a, is, am I saying modalism? Am I saying that right? That's right. And how is that different than, because I, I don't think you would believe in modalism, right? No, no. And how would that be no. different from what you're saying about God having different modes then? Yeah. So um, when we talk about uh, modes of subsistence, it's kind of a fancy way. There's, there's a, of, of really just referring to what distinguishes the persons one from another. Why is it that we call the Father, Father, the Son, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit? Um, other language has been used, um, eternal relations of origin, which sounds complicated, but if we stop and think about it, it, it actually makes really good sense. Uh, we're saying, okay, from eternity, so this isn't something that takes place in time or space, from eternity, um, what, what is the... Uh, eternal origin of the son. What is his relation, for example, to the father? And uh, when we turn to scripture, uh, we discover, oh, scripture actually identifies it. Uh, it says that the reason he's called a son is because he's from a father, the father, uh, but it's from all eternity. So it's not as if uh, this is a begetting or a generation that happens at a specific point in time, uh, it's an eternal one. And so there's where our language, right? Uh, it falls short, it's always uh, analogical. We don't want to you know, be literalistic about it. Um, likewise with the spirit, you know, if we ask what distinguishes the spirit, it's that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. That's why we say he's spirated. Well, when we use that type of language, um, we have to be careful that we don't insert our, you know, 21st century meaning back into it. Uh, take the word relation. By relation, we don't mean relationships. Uh, when we think about human persons and how they have relationships with one another, we don't mean necessarily they're one in essence. We mean, oh, they, like you were talking about, oh, they're friends, <laughs> or they get along, or we mean something far more psychological and social. Um, so we don't mean that. Um, likewise, when we use oh, the word modes, modes of subsistence or existence, we don't there mean that the persons are impersonal. Um, this would, this would, uh, take us to a, a heresy known as Sabellianism. Sometimes it's been called modalism. That's different. Uh, there, that refers to the belief that actually there's only one God, one person, and across history, he just functions in three different ways. He reveals himself in three different ways that we call Father, Son, Spirit. That would that's problematic. That's a heresy uh, because that then uh, compromises uh, the three persons themselves. So whatever language we use, whether it's modes of subsistence or eternal relations of origin, sometimes a simple word like processions is really a good one. Um, why has why has the Christian tradition used this type of language? Well, let's use this language to, number one, make sure that we're not compromising the persons as, as persons. And secondly, that we're not forfeiting the unity those persons have with one another, a unity uh, that is so strong, we say it's a unity of essence. So this is why we might say when we're describing the sun, for example, um, Athanasius, for example, he would say things like the son from all eternity is begotten from the father's very essence. 
You see what he's doing there? He's trying to use the strongest language possible to say he is a son and that that is distinct from his father. And yet at the same time, we don't dare separate these persons. Um, they, the, the son is actually from the father's very essence and, mm. and therefore he is, he is equal. Yeah. Wow. If, he, if, um, if, so, so you have this, um, the, the, the father is the father, the son's the son, but there was never a, like a, you know, like yeah, you, you have children, right? Uh, yes, yeah. four of them. <laughs> okay, so you know, you, there's no birth date. Um, there's no birth date. No, <laughs> there's no like, oh my, my beautiful son was born. Let's let's uh, let him grow up, and then I'll send him to Earth. You know, there was That's there was right. never, so the begetting that we hear about in John, the only begotten son, is is not the same thing as like. Um, I think sometimes we confuse it when we read the. Uh, you know, the begets of the scripture, you know, Abraham yes. begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob. Yes. And so it's like a birth order. So what you're talking about here and in, in your book, uh, this is eternal. And you mean by that, there was never a time God's always existed in this, even though it's different. One is the father, one's the son. It's not, it didn't happen at some point. It's always been. That's right. And this is, I, when I uh, teach you know, beginner, beginning students uh, in, in the seminary classroom, I always like to throw at them a bit of a trick question. <laughs> uh, and I'll usually say to them, uh, tell me when, when was, when did the son become a son? When, when was he first begotten from his father? And uh there's a bit of a silence, you know, at that point, and uh, maybe just nervousness. No one wants to say the wrong thing, but it's a trick question, right? Because the answer is, well, the question's all wrong. Uh, there never was a time when the father was not a father, when the son was not a son. A beautiful way of, of putting this is, um, and this isn't original to me, but in scripture, well, scripture uses all kinds of different language to refer to the son, the wisdom of, of the father, the word of the father. And one way of putting this is, well, the oh, truth, truth as well. Uh, there never was a time when the father was without his wisdom or the father was without his word. Uh, it's conveying that, that same truth that, no, this is, um, well, is, is, uh, one of my favorite theologians, John Gill, uh, is he used to say, you know, when we come to this concept of eternal generation or um, this eternal beginning, we have to rid our minds of anything carnal and impure uh, and filled with human limitations so that we don't impose those um, and our, these assumptions back onto uh, the Trinity itself. That's really wise advice, I think. It reminds us that when we are using our language, we speak by way of analogy, it's analogical. And so we have to be careful. We don't make improper assumptions thinking that, oh, we apply our human experience of this onto the eternal God. This became a huge issue, by the way, and a very pastoral issue. Um, it, you know, those who are pastors out there might might be interested in this because in the fourth century, when this whole discussion erupted, it erupted because a pastor by the name of Arius was asked to preach on the scriptures. And uh, when he did so, uh, it created quite a controversy because he said, the son is begotten, but he said, there was a time when the son was not. Well, uh, the other pastor said, wait a minute, um, that, that, that doesn't seem right. Uh, because when you go to the gospel of John, for example, as soon as John opens his gospel, um, this only begotten son he's referring to, well, John seems to think this son is from the father from all eternity. There never was a time when he was not begotten from the father. And then erupted this huge, what we call the Arian controversy, which eventually motivated the Nicene Creed. Uh, this Arian controversy 
a lot of it took place over how do we interpret scripture? How do we use language? How can we come up? We, we've introduced some of these, you know, fancy theological terms and concepts. Uh, those aren't new to me by any means. This was language they started using in order to protect the true meaning of, of scripture itself. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this controversy was so crucial that they then had to clarify, right? That's always important. Clarify, okay, what is it that we mean and what do we not mean when we refer to whether it's begetting or spirating, when we refer to, to the divine persons in this way? I understand the word begetting. What, what, can you explain spirating? What do you mean by that? Yes. So um, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, um, this might sound a bit silly, I know, to, to say this, but uh, he's not a twin brother. <laughs> he's not uh, a grandson. Um, see, that, that would be the type of thinking that we might use in our human experience. But remember, these are divine persons, eternal persons. Um, so he's not another son. Um, rather, the scriptures refer to him as spirit. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. Uh, and the way scripture uses this language. But when we refer to the Holy Spirit, Jesus seems, Jesus alludes to this in John's gospel as well. Um, Why is it that uh, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son in salvation history to, well, to indwell us, to uh, regenerate us, to sanctify us, one day to glorify us? Well, The reason the Father and the Son send the Spirit to us, we see this in the book of Acts, of course, but the the reason that is so fitting is because this same Spirit, apart from the world, apart from history, this same Spirit is is the same Spirit that proceeds uh, from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Uh, and notice the pattern, right? Notice the pattern. Uh, we we might say, uh, for example, why is it that the Son is sent to be to be incarnate? Well, that is fitting because the Son, from all eternity, apart from this world, uh, is begotten. That's that's why he's called Son. He's begotten from his Father, but from all eternity. So um, this language. Uh, it it doesn't, this is where we have to be careful because we might get frustrated and say, well, goodness, this is really still hard to wrap my head around, to which I say, amen, <laughs> because this is, this is the eternal, infinite God we're talking about. It is absolutely a mystery. And well, in all honesty, our minds can only go so far. But at the same time, praise God for the way he's accommodated himself and revealed himself in these names to us so that we can say, oh, this is, this is why we call the son, son, and the father, father. Oh, and this is why we say spirit, because he's the one who is spirated from the father and the son from all eternity. Mm-hmm. So we, we preserve that mystery. Um, and at the same time, uh, we, we just marvel in the, the mystery and the glory of, of the Trinity. Yeah, wow. We have time for two more questions, um, and I, I wish I had, could ask you a thousand more. Um, but let's talk about the simply, simply Trinity. And you touched on this just a minute ago, that uh, like one attribute of the Father is the exact same attribute as the Son. There, there's the simplicity is there's no parts in them. When I first heard about simplicity, I thought, you know, in in the Father there's no parts. He's he's not part. Um, uh, grace and part judgment or justice that's, he, yeah. that's that's just who he is i didn't understand at first until re- more recently that that it was broader it goes into the fullness of the trinity as well so t- to the degree that the father is omnipotent the son is omnipotent the holy spirit's omnipotent um omniscient all three of them are omniscient so so when i hear that i you know, it sounds biblical i get it but it where, where where it throws me off is then well how are they different 
Right. You know, if, if, right. And, and that's what you were talking about a minute ago. Is that how they're different? One's a son and one's a, a proceeds from. Is there any other differences or are they all, uh, is, it, is it really, are they more one than they are three in a sense? Is that, am I off base there? Or? So um, lots of good questions there. Um, I, would, I would say this, um, when we look at scripture and um, ask the question, what is it that distinguishes the persons? I think there's really good reason why those who have come before us have emphasized a thousand times over um, these eternal relations of origin that we just described. For example, the son begotten of the father, the spirit spirated from the father and son, which are, you know, bound up in the very names themselves. Um, these alone distinguish the persons these alone distinguish the persons now why would they why would they argue that way um well one of the reasons why is and that you you sort of hinted at it a minute ago i think um one of the reasons why is if we um identify something else uh whatever that might be as uh, that which distinguishes or even separates uh, the persons, uh, we, we start to compromise their unity. So mm -hmm. you gave some good examples there, right? With you just take the attributes of God. Um, someone might ask, well, uh, does the father possess more of the divine attributes than the son? Or does the spirit have less uh, of these divine attributes than, than the son does? That sort of, sort of question. Um, and what we want to say in response is, no. Uh, remember, each of these persons, uh, they are what we would call a, to use theological language again, they are subsistences of the same undivided, simple divine essence. I know that's really hard for us to understand because that's just not how we work as human beings in society. But uh, here we're talking about divinity itself so that whether we're talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whatever attribute it may be, we can say uh, it, it's not parceled off. It's not as if, oh, the the, the father's got 40% more of the divine attributes than the son or that sort of thing. That would actually create a hierarchy in God and take us into um, a subordinationism uh, that would make the per some of the persons unequal uh, to, to others, which would be uh, disastrous. Yeah. Um, so whether we're talking... And, and here we could say the same thing um, about other attributes of God. One way to think of this is these attributes, um, the, the essence, the divine essence of God is, is these perfections, and these perfections are uh, the divine essence itself. Um, they are identical with one another. And so for that reason, we can, we can rejoice and say the son is, is omnipotent. Uh, the son has all the glory, all the same glory. The, the son uh, is, he, he is omniscient on and on, on whatever attribute it may be. Um, the son and Holy spirit, they have, those attributes are no less theirs than they are the father's. Mm -hmm. That's really crucial because sometimes, uh, and this has been a temptation of late, sometimes it, it is a bit tempting to look at uh, the persons and say, oh, there must be some type of hierarchy within the life of God, even apart from, apart from the incarnation. There must, some, some will say there must be some type of hierarchy. Now, now, we talked about the fourth century in which Arianism uh, certainly said that much and more. Um, today, you know, it's not, we don't necessarily have, you know, Arians walking around in our, hopefully not in our churches. Um, 
So, so praise God for that. However, even um, there's d- other types of subordination and hierarchy that could creep in uh, into our thought, into our circles in which um, we start saying things like, well, maybe there's a functional subordination of the Son or the Holy Spirit. And, and on that basis, we start thinking, oh, there's some type of functional hierarchy within the imminent life of God. That too would, would be out of bounds. Uh, that too would compromise the unity and the simplicity of, of this Godhead. No, no, you're absolutely right. That's powerful. Uh, the, um, the picture we seem to be painting in our pulpits today seem to be more, each of them having somewhat of a different personality. You know, if you want power, you know, go to a charismatic church and, and the Holy Spirit will give you power. Right. If you want uh, love, go to a church that really talks about communion and community and intimacy and the Father's heart of God will be there for you. And, you know, and so it seems like we uh, distinguish, you know, not, not simplicity of God, but actually a diversity in, in the different things. So I'm really glad you brought that to our attention because that could be, uh, I know you got to go for another interview here. So one last question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, in um, in none greater, you have a quote that I just absolutely loved. I think it was from Augustine. I didn't write it down, but it says, "Within the Trinity, nowhere is erring more dangerous, seeking more toilsome, and finding more fruitful." Uh, I, I love that because I think some of us put the Trinity on the back burner. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, salvation, Christology, Newman, uh, you know, all these other ologies are. Um, essential to us, but Trinity, you know, take or leave it. If you get it wrong, it's no big deal. But, but, but really, when you say no erring is no more dangerous, that if you get this wrong, you're really like, if your students, for instance, if they don't really take hold of what biblically you're teaching, things can really go wrong. Right. And then lastly, but if you get it right, it can be very fruitful. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you you said that last part too. Uh, Cause it, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, t- to those in the church, maybe you're a churchgoer, maybe you're a pastor, either way, um, this, is, this is worth your time. Uh, this is worth your energy. This, this is so important that those pastors who came before you put their lives on the line to get it right and mm-hmm. to make sure that that baton was passed on to you so that you then could turn and teach your people who this triune God is in a way that's faithful to, to the Bible. Um, that, that's one reason why Augustine can say that to say, never has erring been so serious because this is God we are talking about. So this is a first order issue. It, is, it has that type of priority. Yes. On the one hand, uh, like we alluded to earlier, the Trinity is a mystery. So this is going to be hard work. Uh, this is going to take time and effort. And it, might, it may mean learning terms and concepts that we're, we're usually not used to talking about. But it's crucial uh, lest we actually, I mean, imagine this, we actually teach our people uh, a doctrine of God that is that is unfaithful, mm. and they uh, they actually end up hearing or absorbing uh, or thinking thoughts about God that are unfaithful. What could be more relevant, right, to worship, to worship itself? Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, of that I realize that some may hear that and think, "Oh my goodness." I just can't even touch it. That's that's so overwhelming. That's so intimidating. But but fit, we have to finish what Augustine says, right? He says, never is it more fruitful. And that's where mm-hmm. there's a word of encouragement to, to those who are watching and listening is, yes, it's hard work. Yes, we want to be really careful. So let's labor hard and, and, and take time to get this right. But there's a huge reward at the end of this. Uh, not only will, as you are reflecting on the, the, the blessedness of this eternal training, not only will it move you to prayer and worship, it, I, 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 can, I can guess 
it will then inspire you to take it to your people as well to say, hey, if we understand who this one God is, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, did you know that it could actually completely change our worship and the way we know, we know this one God as well. Um, and this is why I, I love to point people to uh, John Owen, the Puritan, and his book, Communion with the Trinity, in which he says, you know, because of the Trinity's unity and simplicity, we, whenever we have fellowship with uh, a particular person of the God, we have fellowship with the whole Trinity. And then he'll turn right around and say, and, and because of those eternal relations of origin we mentioned, we can also then have uh, fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a way that is very fitting and appropriate to who to who, to to them as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He, Owen goes on and on to to then just turn over one scriptural uh, rock after another to explain well what then does fellowship and communion what does it mean to know this triune god and i think people will be surprised actually it's it means more than you could imagine because we not only then have fellowship with the father by his love and the and and the son by his grace but the spirit by his comfort and consolation uh to us in in the christian life wow that's beautiful that's uh, uh, a <clears throat> I love that you can think such deep thoughts about God and yet be on this podcast today and communicate them in such a way that does stir our hearts to worship and, and adore God and, and to know him more. You know, Jeremiah 9.23 always comes to mind when, you know, the, let not a wise man glory in his wisdom or a mighty man in his might, a strong man in his strength, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knows me. And you can't know God if, if you have a wrong understanding of the Trinity. You don't, you're not going to know him in fullness. You're not going to be fruitful. And, uh, you know, just hearing you speak today, Matthew, I, I, I can tell that your work in, in studying and knowing personally the heart of God uh, has come been fruitful to you because you're communicating in a way that is a blessing. I want to thank you for that. It's, uh, I can tell it's not just ivory tower uh, uh, intellectualism. It's, it's, you're, you're really communicating as somebody that you know. And thank God for you and keep up the good work. Man. I'm really encouraged for you. Thank you for your books, too. Uh, coming out real soon. Simple. Simply Trinity and none greater. I highly recommend them both. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much, Gary. It's been wonderful and so encouraged by your ministry and the way that you are uh, teaching and and encouraging pastors and churchgoers out there. Uh, Thank you so much. Appreciate it. God bless. The Gary Wilkerson Podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting.